everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. It's kind of loud where I am, but I wanted to make sure I got out this episode. And it's a great compilation of some interviews I did with people at the People Summit. They're still totally applicable. Make sure you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show because I'll be posting parts of the interviews that I'm not including in this episode. Also, stand by for some great regular episodes and bonus content. A debate between Dr. Adam Gaffney and journalist Joshua Holland about what to do about healthcare. Some nice left-on-left debate. Zed Jelani talking about being the subject of an Islamophobic smear and also about the boycott, divest, sanctions movement. And we'll also be talking to Ellie Valley about his great comic book, Diaspora Boy and Israel Man. Also, make sure that you check out my latest piece at pace.com to the top of my Twitter about Kamala Harris and about how the response to the criticism of Kamala Harris reveals the disingenuous hypocrisy of the pseudo-woke liberal wing of the Democratic Party, which is fine erasing women and people of color as long as it suits their political interests. Please follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe to us on iTunes, and rate and review us. Thanks. Today I'm playing some really great interviews that I collected when I was at the People Summit in Chicago. The People Summit was a gathering of 4,000 activists, organizers, progressives, politicians. Speakers included Naomi Klein, Van Jones, Ben Jealous, Nina Turner, and Bernie Sanders. First, I talked to Larry Krasner, the Democratic nominee for District Attorney of Philadelphia. Then, I talked to Paula Swearingen, who is a West Virginia native, and she's running against Joe Manchin in the U.S. Senate. We also talked to Ginger Jensen, Minneapolis City Council Ward 3 candidate, and a member of Socialist Alternative. Then, I talked to Stephen R. Jaffe, Democrat, civil rights attorney, running against Representative Nancy Pelosi in California. Then I talked to Andre Vasquez, executive director of Chicago Progress, chair for Reclaim Chicago North Chapter. So glad to be talking to Larry Krasner, a Democratic candidate for the District Attorney of Philadelphia. He uh, won the primary overwhelmingly, and he's poised to win the DA's race. Um, And he's here. We are live at the People Summit in Chicago. And we just wanted to find out from you what was so exciting and what was so inspiring about your, your race, your candidacy, that it was able to win in such a landslide? Well, I hate to, I hesitate to call myself inspirational because for 56 years I wasn't. So I don't want to make this too much about me because I think that would be inaccurate. But I do think that the ideas were clear. They were direct. They were unexpected by some people who are conventional politicians. Uh, And I think that was effective. For example, when you tell people that you're not going to seek the death penalty, that causes shockwaves among political professionals who will explain to you why it's terrible. The only problem is they're wrong. It actually worked out just fine, thank you. Uh, So we came out with a very direct message, one that I believed in. It had a resonance with a lot of people. And then because I have not been a politician and because I have been involved for so many years with activists, we had this army this frankly untapped uh, source of power, which was 
activists, organizers, people who are probably better politicians than most politicians, they just don't play. Well, they played in this race. And when they played in this race, we had an amazing outcome. We have a uh, ward system in Philadelphia, very controlled by the Democratic Party in theory. In fact, what happened is out of 66 wards, I was only endorsed in 12, but we won 47. In fact, what happened is in a city where in the last two four-year election cycles, there have been about 105 or 110,000 total votes that came out. In this election cycle, 150,000 votes came out. That is remarkable for a lot of reasons because it's a heck of a lot of votes, but it's also remarkable because Hillary Clinton lost the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania by 40,000 votes. And here in one city in the state, we find this untapped resource of 45,000 votes. It's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. And that is the reason why the Democratic Party in Philadelphia is, I think, both excited and concerned. The Republican Party in Philadelphia is flat out concerned and it's being noticed both statewide and nationally by both parties. Again, I don't think it's about me. I really don't. I think it's about the reality that this experiment can repeat, that there's this untapped gold mine of activists and organizers who have not played in politics historically, but should start doing it because they're better at politics than the politicians. What made you become a lawyer in the first place? Well, I couldn't play professional sports. I couldn't act, and I couldn't play guitar, so I did what I could do. I like to argue with people, you know? So as a consequence, I became a lawyer, and for whatever foolish reason, decided I wanted to do criminal justice. So I did, I was a public defender for five years, state and federal court, and then I launched my own little law firm, which defends individuals in criminal court, but also files civil rights lawsuits against often police officers who are involved in brutality or corruption. We've also done some other litigation around disabilities, around uh, sexual harassment of women in the workplace, corrections officers, and so on. But fundamentally, I wanted to do defense of the individual. I wanted to stick up for the underdog, and I wanted to do it in the context of civil rights as a trial attorney. So that's what I did. There doesn't seem to be as big a tradition of uh, progressives going into the DA's office. I mean, I, I think of progressive lawyers being defense attorneys. So what made you decide to run for for DA, district attorney? I spent 30 years watching the criminal justice system go further and further off the rails. I looked around at 56 years of age at the candidates who were in the race, and it was clear that none of them had a background that made their supposedly progressive platforms credible. Uh, many of them I knew personally, and I knew for years, and I saw no sign in the things they had done during their careers that they meant what they were saying about being a kinder and gentler prosecutor. So I just decided it was time. I pushed about as hard as I could from the outside, achieved, frankly, a decent amount from the outside, but I just thought it was time to see if I could get on the inside and, and make more change. Did people tell you that you were way too um, progressive and compassionate to win a primary for this office? I mean, Incessantly, sometimes unkindly. They said a few other things that weren't kind either, mm -hmm. which is the nature of politics, but right. yes, they did. And tell us why the death penalty is so important. Well, put aside the moral arguments for a minute, which I think are compelling, but it's so important because, for example, in Pennsylvania, $1 billion have been spent since the 1970s, and yet no person in Pennsylvania has been executed against his or her will since 1962. All right. There have been six exonerations from death row in Pennsylvania during that period. So it is not a good idea to execute people 
who are innocent. I think we can agree on that. And those Scalia would disagree. Well, may he rest in hell. That's me, not you. Scalia would disagree. That is true. So would Attila the Hun. Right. They would both disagree, and a few other people whose names we could add. They would disagree. But the reality is, a billion dollars is the equivalent at forty thousand bucks a year for a young teacher. It's the equivalent of about five hundred teachers per year across Pennsylvania for the last 50 years. And instead what we've had is no executions. You know, there, there is zero evidence that the death penalty reduces crime, but there's plenty of evidence that good public education does. So we've had this basically fraudulent policy that does nothing more than advance cynical politicians to higher office by preying off of hatred and fear. Or we could have good public education like the good public education I had when I was in Pennsylvania schools. We could have good public education rather than the school closings and the, the massive class sizes that we have now. So when people who I know who support the death penalty hear about exonerations, they then say, you see, the system works. The people who are innocent uh, are, are being cleared. We don't have to worry about it. Uh, seems like one of the issues is that People don't have the resources when they're when they're when, when lawyers are trying to defend people who are still on death row. It seems like they don't have the time or resources to go and prove the innocence of someone who has already been executed. Um, can you talk about that and how sure. how how what's what's your response to people who who use the exoneration as an argument that exonerations as an argument that it's a self-correcting system? I mean, my response is that's an extra super dumb argument for a couple reasons. These exonerations. Is that a legal term? Is yes, that, it is. Okay. It's a technical term, and there are hyphens. Nice. Um, here's the deal. It's called DNA. DNA has not been around forever. DNA comes around, and the exonerations almost always reflect a small sliver, a test of how the system works. And that test is the following. For cases where DNA was actually captured, such as blood, semen, hair, skin, whatever it is, and then preserved but could not have been scientifically tested at the time, we're getting a look at how the rest of the criminal justice system looked. 25 years later, after some innocent person has sat in a jail and been on death row, which is pretty dismal, for all that time, in this small sliver of cases where they took the DNA and they preserved it all this time, we find that they're innocent, and then they get out. There are so many people on death row. The vast majority on death row are there without any DNA having been collected. So what we're really seeing here is a sample of a subset, and that sample proves the inaccuracy of identifications, the untruthfulness of confessions. Look at this, for example. Of the exonerees, 30% of them confessed to a crime we absolutely know they didn't commit. Of the exonerees, 70% were positively identified by people who were just, for the most part, honestly mistaken. The, the, the exonerees are an indictment of the whole system and its inaccuracies, and they are called to action to try to make the whole system more accurate. So that's why I say that's an extra dumb argument. It's also extra dumb because it forgets the fact that we've had generations of people before there was DNA. It kind of leaves that part out. So we've had plenty of innocent people executed. We have plenty of people on death row in Pennsylvania who don't have the benefit of having had DNA collected and preserved who are innocent. I mean, that's just the reality. There's no other intelligent way to interpret this data. How did what happened, I know this is not, this, the, this is Arkansas, different state, but how did what happened in Arkansas happen with those executions before they, that lethal drug um, expired? I, I don't under, that's all of that is legal technically? Like, it just seems like such a barbaric thing to allow it to happen. Um, it is a barbaric thing. I mean, it's because you have a bunch of cynical politicians 
a bunch of, uh, frankly, medieval-minded people who are perfectly happy to kill people in order to advance their careers, who see no problem with killing the innocent now and then. You know, that's, that's reality. Right. Um, what, is go- what will it take for the death penalty be- to become um, illegal on a national level? Is that going to happen? Well. Federal level? Is, is it going to happen? happen? It is going to happen. You know, it is going to happen. It's increasingly happening. What's happening is that juries are shutting it down more and more, which is a clear reflection of the popular will. What's also happening is that you're getting progressive DAs elected. For example, Aramis Ayala in Orlando came out and said, look, I've, I have studied this. I'm not going to pursue the death penalty. And despite the onslaught from the governor of Florida and various other people, she's sticking to her guns. Her non-guns. So, sticking to her non-guns. There you go. Making a pun. All right. Non- non-lethal pun. I see what you did. You can use it. I see go what around you did there. stump with that. I, that. That was killer. I see what you did uh, there. Non-killer. She's sticking to her guns. Well, that's my position as well. And it's going to be the position of more and more district attorneys who are in a position to say, I, I have the discretion to pursue the death penalty, but I won't. So anyway, it's, it's going to happen. But as with most popular movements, it's going to happen first because people are going to say no, then because their elected officials are going to say no when they have discretion, and then because legislation is going to say no. Um, and what about the cruel and unusual thing? I mean, is that is it a numbers game to, to a certain extent, whether or not the, the death penalty is cruel and, un, well, forget the cruel part, the unusual part. Is that based at all on how many states practice it? You know, honestly, I've always found those constitutional arguments kind of goofy. Not dumb. What was the other term? Not super dumb. It's not it super was dumb dumb. But extra super dumb. Extra super dumb. This yeah. is like uh, dumb, just regular dumb. This is kind of like just dumb. Dumb, yeah, low-key dumb. It's but capital D, though. Capital D. Yeah. What can people do to find out more about your campaign and to support you moving forward? Well, I'm glad you asked. They can go to krasner4da.com, which is K-R-A-S-N-E-R-F-O-R-D-A.com. And they can volunteer in a variety of ways, as you know, in the in the world of distributed efforts. There's all sorts of things that can be done. I mean, there were people who were doing things for me in different states, even in different countries. And that was Larry Krasner, the Democratic nominee for District Attorney of Philadelphia at the People's Summit in Chicago. I'm really excited to be talking to Paula Jean Swearingen. Uh, that is, uh, the last name is spelled just so people who want to look her up can do so. It's S-W-E-A-R-E-N-G-I-N. And Paula is a um, brand new Congress nominee, candidate, a brand new Congress candidate, and she's running against Joe Manchin. So can you tell us about how you got involved in this race um, and about what brand new Congress is? Well, I'm with Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats, and I'm running against uh, Senator Joe Manchin in West Virginia. Um, Several reasons that I got involved was because I had been an activist for several years fighting for clean water, clean air, and a a, a stable economic infrastructure in West Virginia. Um, I'm a coal miner's daughter and granddaughter. Um, Most of my family worked in the industry. I've dealt with the progression and regression of coal. I've tasted polluted water. I've seen some of the cleanest water in the world that no longer exists. I've buried a lot of my family to the coal industry. My daddy died at 54 years old. My grandpa, he suffocated to death with black lung. Most of my uncles have black lung. And uh, my stepdad, he has heart disease. So 
being a friend of Cole, I found out Cole wasn't a friend of mine. I've lately there's a divide in West Virginia and the divide stems from propaganda that Cole is our big promise. We've we fought for generations with Cole. We've we've dealt with the boom and bust. Our ancestors fought labor struggles and won. This generation's kind of failed. We failed each other because we've been bid against each other for basic human rights, and that's food and water. But I decided to run because after all my years of begging, pleading, and crying, it's, I felt like it went to deaf ears. And our politicians are not people serving. They're mm-hmm. self-serving and they're industry serving. Brand New Congress has been a great deal of support to me in West Virginia because they're helping with my campaign. Um, we are running a slate of candidates all over America that feel like, feel like I do, that ordinary people should be making decisions in their government instead of corporate money. And um, I'm happy that we have that kind of support because we have not had no hope and promise for a long time. And I'm glad to have comrades all over America, colleagues all over America, wanting to do the same thing as me. Ordinary people, teachers, economists, um, you know, just I'm a single mom in Appalachia. I'm an accounting clerk. I never thought that I would be running for Senate, but I think that we need real decision makers and for us. And we need to be making decisions for ourselves. The Industrial Revolution was built on the backs of coal miners, their families, and surrounding communities. This nation has been powered by our blood. Trillions of dollars in coal has went out of West Virginia. We've not seen their return in our communities. We're one of the sickest and poorest states in the nation. I'm ready to fight for a future for my children. I'm ready to fight back. West Virginia is ready to fight back. And we're uniting like we have never united before. Black lung, I didn't know this, and I don't want to be gruesome, but I also think it's important for people to know, is a really, it's not just a lethal disease, but it involves a lot of suffering. Yeah. My grandpa, he he was a union man, and he had a really cushy retirement, but he lived suffocating until he died. He lived on oxygen, breathing machines. He coughed up black coal dust. It, it hardens your dust. It hardens your lungs. We also have silicosis in West Virginia. We have a method of coal mining called mountaintop removal coal mining. And the dust from that form of mining can travel five miles. And it's silica dust in the components from that. And that's going in our children's lungs now. And, you know, they've, they've tried to take away the regulations for the underground mines and the safety regulations. So this generation is not being protected like my grandfather was and like my daddy was, even though they did suffer like they did. And with, I don't know if you know, Joe Manchin fought for the Miners Protection Act. What happened was we had some of the coal industries in West Virginia file bankruptcy. They were continued to go on with business. So the retirees with the UMWA have been at risk of losing their health care and their pensions, which nobody's been really fighting for their pensions yet. But they were promised this. They were promised this lifetime benefit for their sacrifices, and they were going to lose it. It was an attack on our elderly. They did get through the Reclaim Act. They did get their health care, which is coming out of our tax dollars. The industry has no, they've not, not been held accountable but there's not, no promise for future coal miners. And also, I want it to resonate that these companies are still allowed to make a profit after they were bailed out of their responsibility. 
so it's kind of smoke and mirrors and it's re-election time and so what happens in west virginia is it seems like our politicians seem to notice and they seem to fight but they don't fight for our issues the rest of the time in this during this administration they've gotten rid of the streamline protection rule in west virginia the tank bill which was protecting some of our water quality and even with the clean water act we're not protected because the coal industry kind of gets a fine like a parking ticket but they're stuck they're not they're not held responsible well and also even, don't they make more money isn't it better isn't it cheaper for them to cut corners and save money and pay the fine than it would be for them to not cut the corners in other words whatever they're getting fined for it's such a low amount right. compared to all the money right. that they're saving by not doing this health right. and safety thing right and public health and safety is last on the political platform. And why should that even be? Coal miners even deserve clean water. But what we've seen now with the market, coal, mine is, coal mining is not going to rebound. And in the panhandle, they've got fracking now. So those people are starting to deal with a singular industry-based economy. They're having to deal with water issues. But there's really no plan B in the southern coal fields, except for possibly gas, is what Joe Manchin told me the last time I saw him. But they're not investing in any kind of economic development that's going to take care of the environment and, and is going to you know, give a kickback in our communities. We, we deserve a diverse economy. Like I said, trillions of dollars went out of state for in coal. My platform now is to put that trillion, trillions of dollars back in our state and back in our communities and give educational opportunities. And, give, and everybody in West Virginia deserves health care. What does it say about America? We have some of the sickest people in the world. You know, you turn on your light switch, it's, it's powered by the blood of Appalachians. Everybody in Appalachia deserves equal health care. What, um, what is the future of jobs in Appalachia? Where are people going to be finding employment if uh, coal is not the future? We, we've already experienced depopulations. Depopulation. It's time to bring our families back home. But, you know, there's, there's something about our culture in, in West Virginia. You know, the mountains are like magnets to us. That's our home. You know, my family settled there when the Cherokee Indians did. Um, I'm part Scott-Irish and part Cherokee. My family settled there before the coal industry did, and they're out there welcome because it's not helping us anymore. And when did it ever help us? You know, look at all of our labor struggles and look at, look at the environmental impact. And we're the headwaters to the eastern seaboard, so we're not being good neighbors either. Um, but, yeah, even outside the environmental impact, there's no promise whatsoever, and there's no diversity in our economy. We can have wind and solar in West Virginia, and we can manufacture wind and solar in West Virginia. We can grow hemp on the mountaintop removal sites. They're not fit for a rattlesnake, but it's been proven the hemp is invasive. It can grow there. So that's at least something yeah. that we can do with the damage that's been done. And just like with the Miners Protection Act, that was like putting a Band-Aid on, on a gunshot wound. Our leaders do not go to the root of the source anything the coal industry wants they get and there's a clear difference between between being a friend of the coal industry and a friend of the coal miners our 
the current miners have no protections whatsoever. And it's a shame that we're treat, they're treating our workforce like that. And most of the people in the communities in West Virginia and the southern coal fields, they are connected one way or the other to the coal industry. I'm a coal miner's daughter. And how dare Senator Joe Manchin sit there and tell me I have to give up my water supply and my children have to give up a water supply because my neighbors and my family and my friends need jobs. We are a family. We are neighbors and we are friends. It's wrong to say we should be divided. We all deserve clean and safe jobs. And the last time I talked to him and approached him and told him that we deserve that, he was, pitch he was trying to bid the coal miners in the crowd against me and said we would have to agree to disagree. That's a disgrace. He's a public servant. And he's sitting there telling the people in Appalachia that we don't deserve. We're human beings. We live in a sacrifice zone. And we are tired of being their collateral damage. Why isn't he, yeah, I mean, does he have to drink the water? Uh, is he drinking the water that's being polluted for, from the coal mine? I, 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 you know what? I invite him to take a drink. I invite him to take a drink. He right. is welcome to take a drink any time. And what, uh, how did you see him? You were at some kind of forum or? Uh, he, he held town halls because he's up for re-election. Right. Um, when, did you always feel this way about him? Did your opinion of him change? I think years ago what, I, I voted for him one time. But I think it's just like a surgeon. They've, you know, you mm. can get immune to people suffering and pe people dying. You know, pe now people say to him, we are dying. We are actually dying at an alarming rate. High levels of cancer. We have cancer clusters in Appalachia. Silicosis is coming to our children if we don't do something about mountaintop removal and regulate it better. And he does not care. I, I don't, I, well, and you know, his funders is why he doesn't care. They make decisions for him, make decisions for us. It's a disgrace that you have to fight over basic human rights. Right. And, and that's not our fault. That's our government's fault. Right. And there's no need to because no one wants to be, we don't need to be poisoning one group of the other, one group so that another group can make money. I mean, your neighbors, right? So if the group that makes money is, is, having to drink poison water, what good is that, right? If, right. You're, if you're not alive, you can't enjoy your salary. And, and, and people become complacent because they feel like they can't do anything because the government's so big and the coal industry's so big. But, you know, that's what this is about, is ordinary people saying, you know what, there's more people in America than they are in our governments, and we can fight back, and we can fight back with our votes. You know, this campaign is launched in a month. And with brand new Congress, we are not a federal pack. We're a super pack. We are taking monies from individuals. It's people funded. We're not even allowed to take over $5,000 in an individual donation from a, from a person. And so you think about that within a month, $80,000. That just shows right there that people can invest in their own government. And, we, and I don't need billions of dollars in this campaign. I need votes votes we have to vote them out people need to get up off the couch and run for office and take their government back because they it should not be allowed it's genocide and they tell us that we're not worthy we are worthy and we need to fight back what was it like when you heard uh sanders come this guy was a thick new york accent who talks like this i've got emotional when i watched that there was something very endearing about watching this the, the connection between him and people um who came, obviously came from such different walks of life, but it doesn't matter. Senator Sanders, I had somebody ask me when he was coming up to West Virginia, when he rallied, it amazed me because he was, the, he was talking about issues. He was the first politician 
outside of our state and in our state, he paid more attention. And when he was rallying, he was talking about Mount McDowell County. And he was talking about these points that nobody was even recognizing, not even the media. And then when he came back from that town hall, I wasn't even thinking about running for office then. I, remember I just you now. now I remember you. Yeah. I I just I went to him crying because he was he felt like hope because he was there. He was caring. And I, I didn't even know we was being recorded. I just felt like I was crying to Grandpa. Right. Now I remember. I was like, why do you look familiar? And I remember you were the woman afterwards who was crying. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I was just doing what I'd done, begging, begging, begging for anybody to pay attention to us. And Jim Justice, one of the biggest polluting coal barons in West Virginia, I was just wrapping my head around all that stuff then. And he is my Democratic governor. And he's putting silica dust in my kids' lungs every day three miles from my house from his mountaintop removal site. And after that, people were like, run, Paula, you should run. And I realized that there was this huge movement that I wasn't even aware of. And people were willing to help West Virginia. And it just empowered me enough that it gave me enough courage to say, you know what, Joe Manchin is no better than me. How dare him allow this to happen to our children how dare him say that we're collateral damage jobs 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 well by god we'll bring jobs and we'll fire you so wait a second so you decided to run for to against your mansion after the bernie sanders yes ma'am so can you tell us what happened what um i'm glad now i realize i mean this is very exciting for me not to i was already <laughs> i thought you were really cool like already but now i'm like oh my god it's a woman from, so tell me what you thought and felt when you heard him and then how you approached him like physically how did you reach him was he surrounded by people and then what you guys said to each other well it seemed like the big greens last summer were saying coal was over and it wasn't we have an election idol the market's been down but i kind of felt deserted to a point and I was writing op-eds and writing MSNBC, CNN, and so Diane Seamus, who's with the Chris Haynes Show, okay, yeah, Chris Haynes, yeah, yeah. had contacted me and she said, your story touched me. This is about McDowell County, but we would like to get you on the show if we could fit you in. They couldn't fit me in. When the show was over, I kind of run into the crowd and was trying to bird dog him because I thought, you know, he cares so much, maybe he can do something. What's bird dog? I don't know that yeah, term. We, we call it bird dogging when we chase politicians to try to get their attention. Nice. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I went and I walked up to him and he was so sweet. I said, Senator Sanders, can you give me at least two minutes of your time? And he said, yes. Yeah. So I kind of followed him around like a puppy. And I tell you, Watch it, you know, you watch politicians and senators, and they're, they're overwhelmed with the media. And he was talking to the media and stopping for a 1,000 pictures. And we even walked up to another media outlet, and he just stopped. He said, no, I promised her two minutes. And he just took me to the side just to talk to me like a human being. And he didn't overpromise because what can he do? But, you know, sure. a whole lot for West Virginia. We don't have support from our leadership. Um, he has been there, and he's, he's brought issues, and I know he would do anything he could for us. But you know what? Sometimes you got to do things for yourself. You so know? what did you say to him? What did he say to you? I, I pretty much cried and told him what was going on, and he said, I'm not going to overpromise, and he hugged me. And, yeah, and his staff contacted me like he promised and asked what they could do, and, you know, they've been very helpful, but... He's not. There's not a whole lot he can do being one person, right? He you know, and then we have to build it, right? a movement. Like yeah. you know, he he started that engine, 
And it, and that made me realize uh, Save Main Street came up, Stan, Annabelle Park and Stan Williams, right after that to help us, to help us. And I had, you know, people were like, run, Paula, run. And it never even went in my mind to that moment. And I was so grateful for them because they were showing that West Virginia was still struggling. Because what happens with the media is there's light on Appalachia, then they're showing Flint, then they're showing Standing Rock. There's never no united effort. And I've been saying for years, we need to unite about groundwater. We need to unite. We need to unite. And then I found out there was this whole huge movement, and we were uniting, and people were taking their government back. And I'm like, hell yeah, sign me up. And that's Save Main Street? The, well, no, this was Brand New Congress oh, after that, because that's when I, right. you know, people, other people started contacting me. And I don't know who nominated me, but they were two, I got two nominations out of Appalachia after that. After the after that town hall, well, after Save Main Street okay, too, so and everything. What, so Save Main Street, what ha you went to an event that they did? Okay. They actually came up to one of the organizations in West Virginia, and a bunch of us showed them mountaintop removal. We, um, I took them out and showed them, you know, polluted water, and they got a lot of video. They done a lot of live streams. They talked to people, talked to me, and they just raised the voices and the issues of Appalachia. It was beautiful because we hadn't had that kind of coverage in a long time. And that was Paula Swearinger at the People's Summit in Chicago, and she's running against Joe Manchin to represent West Virginia in the U.S. Senate. So excited to be talking to Ginger Jensen, who is running for Minneapolis City Council, Ward 3. All New Yorkers I know are crazy about Ward 3. We love mm. it. It's the best. <laughs> um, and Ginger is here, and she is committed to she's committed to building a grassroots movement for a $15 an hour minimum wage, taxing the rich, funding affordable housing, mass transit, and healthcare programs, strengthening tenants' rights, and ending the undemocratic state preemption on rent control, resisting the Trump agenda through no deportations, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ rights. Um, and she's also part of Socialist Alternative. Cool. We're so excited to have you on the Katie Halper Show. It's uh, the debut. Debut. Uh, Katie Halper. Things are really, this is a real important <laughs> milestone. Things are going to change. That's and excellent. You're going you're gonna to get that, get, waltz into that, uh, into that city council seat. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you're running and what you are hoping to uh, achieve through your campaign? Sure. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with me today. I mean, I, over the last three years, I have been the executive director for 15 now, and that was a you know it's a, um, a broad movement campaign that was launched out of Seattle in 2014, and with Shama Sawant helped to raise the minimum wage there to be the first major city to go with that $15 minimum wage, and in Minneapolis, um, you know over the last in 2016 actually we uh, collected signatures to try and put. Uh, $15 minimum wage on the ballot to voters and it had uh, majority support in the city over 68% you know they wanted to do it um, without a tip penalty which Minnesota is one of only seven states where tip workers get the same minimum wage as any other minimum wage worker it's a super important thing to protect um, and basically the city council entirely Democratic Party with the exception of one Green Party member knocked it off the ballot. And so we sued the city with a group of low-wage workers. We won in a lower court, but then again, the city appealed to basically keep workers in poverty, and we lost at the Minnesota Supreme Court. But through the process of that grassroots campaign, where we gathered 
nearly 20,000 signatures just, you know, in the city of Minneapolis made it a key issue in the 2016, I'm sorry, 2017 elections this year. And um, basically we've put it at the center of politics in Minneapolis. And now I'm actually really proud to say that we're on the verge of victory and we're on the verge of winning uh, a minimum wage of $15 in the city of Minneapolis. The city council slated a vote on it at the end of June. And this would affect over 71,000 workers, you know, predominantly women and workers of color who are disproportionately in low wage jobs. And it was basically uh, the experience that I've had running up against the Democratic Party, putting hurdle after hurdle in front of low-wage workers trying to assert their interests in the city of Minneapolis, you know, supposedly a very progressive city. Um, and basically, that's a lot of the background for why I wanted to run with Socialist Alternative. I'm a member of the organization. And basically, I think we can do what Seattle has done and use that model to, uh, you know, sort of put forward a really um, workers' rights-oriented, you know, um, the interest of working people at the forefront of the stage in Minneapolis. I was a tipped worker myself for around a decade and have done a lot of work, um, you know, with uh, people in Minneapolis around um, tenants' rights issues. And um, I worked with Occupy Homes in the past to resist foreclosures. It's basically, I think, about asserting a, a real agenda for working people and having our movements with an organizing seat in City Hall. What was the justification given by Democrats who voted against the uh, $15 an hour minimum wage bill? I think like in a lot of places across the country, they were um, basically pointing to process. They were saying that a citizen-led initiative or, you know, a uh, uh, workers' rights initiative that would go to voters, they didn't want uh, laws to be decided in that way. They thought it was too democratic, too democratic basically. Leave yeah. To, they wanted out. to have control over the process. And that was where, I mean, I think that was a very polarizing part of the process uh, where they were basically saying, we want to lead, but in actuality, they didn't want to do anything. And it's really been under the pressure of a massive grassroots movement where we've had meetings and protests and demonstrations. There's been fast food strikes. Um, you know, it's, I think, really exciting, actually, to, to connect, too, with um, recently uh, UFCW workers um, have been organizing at co-ops in, in the city of Minneapolis, and they're about to have their union recognized. And the, the workers who are working at these co-ops first came to the movement through the 15 Now movement. So a broad grassroots movement actually has led to more discussion about the need to have you know, long-term uh, bargaining power, long-term representation, and that's part of why I think it's really important we do these even broader campaigns at the municipal level because it points in the direction of what workers really need. In this case, that's a bridging into um, actual union representation. And what is Socialist Alternative? Yeah, so we're a national organization. We're a social, racial, gender uh, justice, economic justice organization. And um, we, of course, have Shama Sawant um, as a representative on the Seattle City Council. And I think a lot of what she's been able to do with her office as a megaphone for social movements is what we aim to do in Minneapolis with my campaign. Um, in one example, there was a proposal in Seattle to spend $160 million to build a new police precinct. Now, mind you, the Seattle Police Department has been under investigation for the last several years, Federal investigation for um, too many instances of aggression and so police maybe brutality. To pay their legal costs. Yeah, like potentially. Fund. Yeah, they've got to figure out how to best, you know, sort of make up that debt. But Shama was able to organize with um, this Block the Bunker coalition of you know um, uh, anti-racist organizations, Black Lives Matter, um, and young people who are trying to resist this this bunker from being built and they were successful in not only blocking that 160 million dollars but with the housing crisis in Seattle they were able to get 30 million dollars put toward building 
below market rate affordable housing. That is the type of stuff with putting positive proposals forward for what people really need, connecting the idea that like in actuality, it's not about further burdening regular working people, but we have to talk about taxing the rich. There's no way to talk about what people actually need in cities or resisting the Trump agenda without talking about the need to further tax the rich. Right. And that's something that people don't really remember. You know, we constantly hear the idea or the phrase thrown around. We can't afford it. Where's right. the money going to come from? Money doesn't grow on trees. No, it doesn't grow on trees, but it can come from taxing the rich, right? Absolutely. And that was Ginger Jensen, Minneapolis City Council Ward 3 candidate for the People's Summit in Chicago. I'm really excited to be talking to Stephen Jaffe, who is running for uh, Congress for the 12th District of California. And that means that he is running to unseat Nancy Pelosi. That, Welcome. That is correct. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking to us. Can you tell us, please, what made you decide to run? Well, my decision to run really came in uh, three steps. Uh, first, what started it all was I was tremendously inspired by Bernie Sanders um, as a person and also on the issues. He had really resonated within me. I worked very hard for him, sent him a lot of money. And uh, I was actually recruited by the national campaign and uh, went to Nevada to help supervise what turned out to be chaotic Nevada caucuses. But um, so that was the first thing that, that got me thinking uh, on a larger scale. Um, the next thing that happened was in July <coughs> when Bernie was essentially cheated and screwed out of the nomination. Um, that offended me politically, personally, and as a lawyer, I, I found the process that was followed very offensive and I'm upset, continue to be, that there's no remedy for people that, that do that so for Bernie. What, can you elaborate up on that as, as a lawyer, as a jurist, if you will? Uh, lots of people talk about him being cheated, but it's, it's kind of hard to, to make the case, I think. Not, and it's not hard to make the case. It's hard to find people who make the case um, kind of convincingly, but also in an uh, intelligible way. So can you explain it? Uh, I think you're asking me, what do I mean by being cheated? Yeah. Well, I think uh, a lot of the primary votes uh, and caucus results were manipulated to give uh, Hillary delegates that she really didn't win. Uh, I know that I personally witnessed with my eyeballs uh, real bad stuff going on in Nevada. Um, so when Hillary defenders say, oh, we didn't do that, it was never proved, you know, it was proved to me because I saw it. Like what kind of stuff? Well, the caucuses were were run in uh, various public buildings. Schools were common. There was one I know uh, where it was held in a school. There was actually five precincts were caucusing in five different classrooms of that school. Each caucus was supposed to have a uh, caucus leader appointed to be there and run the caucus in a fair manner. And then each real estate site for that school was supposed to have a site director to cover the activities of the entire site. Well, the one school I'm talking about, um, none of the caucus directors showed up, so they were chaotic, and a lot of people, they had to essentially, the caucus, elect on the spot a leader, and, and the, the stories I heard from people is that the Hillary people bullied all of the caucuses into making their people the leaders, even though they may have been outnumbered. Um, the site director situation in that particular uh, location, the site director was a 17-year-old high school girl 
who was clueless about what to do and how to do it. Uh, wasn't her fault. Right. She really wasn't uh, equipped to uh, take on that kind of uh, job or responsibility. Uh, there were people standing in line uh, when the caucuses doors were closed who were told, go home, you won't get in. That violated the law. They were entitled. They're in line. They were supposed to get in. There were people told that their caucus had been moved and it was happening somewhere else. That was not true. Did you uh, throw the chair? Were you one? Were you the, the famous chair thrower? I did not throw a chair. Well, of course, I'm referring <laughs> to the footage of a man who lifted up a chair in frustration, who was never identified as either a Hillary or a Bernie supporter, who was surrounded by a bunch of people who looked like Bernie supporters, uh, who made him put the chair down and then hugged him. It was kind of a kumbaya moment. Um, and that became the narrative of violent Bernie bros who were throwing chairs and multiple outlets reported about chairs being thrown. So what is your background? Uh, you practice law? Uh, I've been a lawyer for 46 years. I practice employment law for employees only. Oh good, so um, the good guys. Yes, I'm one of the good guys in the White Hats. Um, I do protected class based discrimination, age, race, gender, disability, nationality. Uh, you, everybody knows the list. Right. Marital status, sexual orientation. Right. And I've done them all. So it's yeah, it's funny. I have, I went to friend, I went to college with someone who I saw a couple of years after we graduated, and after she graduated from law school. So I guess like five years, ten years, seven years, whatever. That doesn't matter. Point is, I I ran into her years after college. She told me she was doing employment law. I said, oh, and the good side or the bad side? She said, there is no good side or bad side. I was like, oh, so the bad side. Because no one would ever say if they were on the good side that there's no good side or bad side. I do what I do for two reasons. One, I'm not. I'm just not wired to represent management. That's not who I am. But secondly, uh, when you represent individuals, you make a difference in their lives. You change their lives. When you represent corporations, they don't know who you are. It's true. So it's it's much more rewarding and gratifying on a, just a personal level. To, right. Yes, to represent people and help people because it's the right thing to do. Right. Um, you do change other people's lives. You just, like, you know, when you're representing the corporations, but that just means what? That you get people fired and uh, you let people get fired. Uh, well, you, uh, by changing lives, I mean in a good way. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, and so why, what's wrong with Nancy Pelosi? She's, she's like, uh, you know, she's, uh, she doesn't like Trump. Isn't that enough? We, we are in the most, I think, progressive uh congressional district possibly in the US Nancy Pelosi does not represent her politics her constituents she's disconnected from the people who have been voting for her year after year because she's been essentially unopposed um, th that's what's wrong with Nancy Pelosi she needs a, a representative in Congress should reflect the views and the wishes and the interests of his or her constituents she doesn't do that. So what are you going to be doing that's different? Well, I, can, I mean, well, yeah, what we, are, we are different on many, many issues. Um, the three that come to mind I usually talk about, uh, I am an absolute supporter of single payer. She is not. She refuses to co-sponsor John Conyers bill for single payer. Uh, the reason she does that is because she takes a great deal of money from health care providers, insurance companies, pharmacies. And uh, they have a, a strong interest in not having single payer. Th they would lose their profits right. uh, pro to a great extent. Another issue is I am a, a strong advocate 
for a uh, drastic reform of the Democratic Party. Uh, I want to abolish superdelegates. Uh, I want to abolish automatic endorsement of incumbents. Uh, Ms. Pelosi doesn't want to reform the Democratic Party because that's how she keeps control of it. Right. Um, I am a strong environment. If it ain't broke for you, don't fix it. Uh, yes. I am broke a strong advocate else, of uh, protecting the environment. Um, to put it bluntly, I am against anything which harms the environment. Um, the current hot issue button, the hot button issue is fracking. I'm against fracking. Uh, I don't believe Ms. Pelosi has ever said she is against fracking. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So uh, I'm much more of a progressive, left-leaning uh, politician than she is. Um, what about, uh, uh, sorry, I just single payer. How are you, uh, how, how much has Bernie Sanders inspired you? And also, how do we make sure that people stay focused and talk about issues and not just personalities? Well, Bernie inspired me because uh, as a person, I was inspired by, first of all, he's, he's an old guy like me, and that was inspiring. Not uh, old. You, no. you, you're, you don't see um, our guest right now, Mr. No. Jaffe, uh, but he's actually wearing a, um, a halter, uh, spandex, and is lifting weights, right, as we speak. Yes. Well, okay. folks, if you believe that, I have a red bridge out in the Bay yeah, Area yeah, yeah. I can sell you. But, uh, no corduroy jacket. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I really like Bernie uh, as a person. I like the way he talks, the straightforward way he talks, and um, the, the way that he is, I think, indisputably the most honest politician out there. And I strive to emulate him in that way. I also agree with um, almost 100% of his position on issues. Right. So uh, I would say that I've been greatly influenced by oh. him. I want, to, I want to tell him where my website is. Yes, please. Because it's uh, Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E, the number four, congress.com. Great, yeah. Thank you. And again, that's Stephen R. Jaffe, Stephen Jaffe for California, for the 12th district. And that was Stephen R. Jaffe at the People's Summit in Chicago. So excited to be talking to Andre Vasquez, mm -hmm. who yes. is with Reclaim Chicago. Correct. So, Andre, can you please tell us what uh, Reclaim Chicago is dedicated to sure. and what so it's all Reclaim about? Reclaim Chicago is a, uh, yeah, it's a group that was formed by the National Nurses United and the People's Lobby, um, so C3 and a C4. Uh, and what we are focused on is really transforming local government politics and focusing a lot on electoral uh, work. So... Uh, we work to, we do direct actions, but we also uh, work to build bases that are very localized and uh, as well as try to find candidates. So we build like a candidate pipeline. So I, um, I met Reclaim Chicago because before that I was a rapper with a retail job. And, uh, Me too. Yes. <laughs> Just <laughs> so everybody gets in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, um, you know, I, I got a retail job. I ended up doing marketing at where I worked and... Uh, you know, I've got two kids, a two-year-old and a three-year-old is my wife. We suddenly get a lot more serious about doing anything we can to improve um, Chicago and just in general. Uh, you know, Bernie, I wouldn't say come out of nowhere. We had been paying attention to Bernie, but we were a little, I was cynical that people would understand the message because usually presidential elections are somewhat beauty pageants. Um, and, but we started seeing him get momentum. I started blasting my Facebook and letting people hear, uh, know about Bernie and was invited to meet him uh, on the south side of Chicago uh, 
by a friend of mine who happened to be the sister of Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa. He is an alderman in our city council. He is 28, I believe now. Democratic socialist, I'm proud of it. Um, openly gay Latino, like ran for office and won with 67% of the vote as a movement candidate. So yeah, so so that along with helping also Kim Fox, um, helping out the campaigns, so our from, state's attorney for God, okay. Yeah. Um, no, so just really focusing on, on a lot of uh, progressive politics. Uh, so I said I was invited to meet Bernie. Um, that made me decide to find three strangers on Facebook and go to Iowa and knock on doors before the primary. Um, then came back to town, decided I was going to put together a show. Like I'd done hip hop shows before. Um, I wanted to bring in people who typically weren't a part of the process. Um, so we brought in. That crowd also met a lot of community organizations through that and kind of smooshed it together in a, an event called Burnfest. That was uh, the night before the primaries in Illinois. Yeah. Uh -huh. that was, uh, it was a night uh, before the primaries in Illinois. Um, and we did great. It sold out with about 350 people. And I met Amanda Weaver, who's the executive director at Reclaim Chicago. Um, and she asked me what I was doing next. And I didn't have a plan. Um, and then she basically, she, she said... You know, you may not know what you're doing or what you call it, but you're community organizing whether you know it or not. Wow. Uh, then I formally trained to Reclaim. And since then, well, you know, led marches. Uh, I was part of uh, at the People's Action Rise Up, the People's Action uh, Founding Convention. I was on stage with Bernie to announce that I'll be running for office in two to five years. Uh, we stormed the Heritage Foundation. We were protesting outside of the White House. Uh, so it's really been a roller coaster ever since. Um, and it's been amazing. Wow. And, and, you know, I was definitely angry after the primaries. I think a lot of us were. Um, and I chose to kind of direct that energy towards being productive. And it's, it's kind of taken me here. Right. Do you still rap? Are you still? Uh... No, I mean, that was feels like years ago. Right. So like so when I was a rapper, I, uh, I was a battle rapper in the city and I was on HBO's uh, Blaze Battle. It was the first televised MC battle as well as uh, MTV's DFX. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, not That's anymore. Odd. Now I've got wow. kids. I'm a family man. So you could. What about doing family rap? I, I try not to. <laughs> yeah, you could do child friendly rap. Yeah, we do like kids books <laughs> in yeah, rap yeah. form. Oh my, that would be really good. I actually probably would resonate. Right? Anything else you want to uh, make sure? No, I would say just check out reclaimchicago.org. I also have an organization called chicagoprogress.com. Oh, what's we're, that? We're trying to work on developing media and content. So the same way like you're doing the show here, podcast, the way yeah. the Young Turks has a show, yeah. like doing the same thing, but hyper focused on local. Oh, great. Right. Like everyone should bring in their aldermen, their county people and, and teach people about local government through like two minute videos on Facebook. Um, and uh, where can people find out more about you? Yeah. So um, you could look up Andre Vasquez uh, Twitter. It's Andre Vasquez, A-N-D-R-E-V-A-S-Q-U-E-Z-C-P. Um, Communist Party? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> no, Chicago Progress. Oh, okay. It, it was low key. No. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, if you check out Chicago Progress on Facebook, I'm on Facebook pretty heavy. So once you do okay. that, I'll be able to find you. Great. People don't find Instagram, me. too? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andre Vasquez of Reclaim Chicago Thank and you, Chicago Progress. Yep. Thanks. Make sure you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show because I'll be posting parts of the interviews that I'm not including in this episode. Thanks.